welcome back. We didn't uh, meet last week because of the because of the weather, uh, but we are on issue four, and we'll cover that tonight. And then next week, issue five, and then we'll start community groups up again two weeks from tonight. Community groups will go for five, or excuse me, six weeks, and then we'll start this up again. So that's just the way it's going to be. We'll cover as many as we can in between community groups. Then we'll have community groups, and then we'll pick up where we left off. Okay. So tonight is uh, issue four, and that is local church mission. So uh, issue three, two weeks ago, was the overall body of Christ and uh, its role in uh, the, the mission of, of Christ. And now this is focused in on the local church, the local manifestation of the, the church, capital C. So you can think of it as church, capital C, and church, small c, if you want. Uh, the universal church and the the local church. So tonight's focused on the the local church. And if you had opportunity then to uh, look at the scripture passages and the study the scripture section and to read the two articles that were part of this, then that'll help us have a profitable discussion. And I encourage uh, everybody who's got an observation or a a question uh, to participate in the discussion on page 23. Page 23. The first uh, question is, uh, describe a church's biblical responsibility to someone like Kim from the uh, Grasp the Issue section. And there were two people, two case studies in that first section. One was Kim and the other was Dave. Dave and Kim Allen were uh, both featured in uh, in (laughs) step one. What they are, they were both. Didn't you notice that? Yeah, they were named Dave Dave and Kim. But uh, Kim... Uh, had, if you recall, she was a young adult. She had uh, particip- grown up in this church. She had participated in the life of the church. And uh, she had set uh, a time to meet with the leadership of the church to discuss uh, a possible missions opportunity for her inner city, I think, missions opportunity. And uh, so she wanted to get some direction and uh, perhaps some support from the leadership for that. So she made her presentation, and as the case study tells us, uh, they didn't really say anything to her other than, uh, we, we trust you to make the right decision. <laughs> Good luck with that, <laughs> basically. And uh, they uh, prayed for direction, and then she left, and even adds, as she was leaving, they went on to the next item on the agenda, which was uh, budgetary stuff, Right. So that's what that case study was about, and that's what question one's referring to. Describe then a church's biblical responsibility to someone like that. person comes, they've got uh, a burden for a particular area of mission, and they come to the leadership. What is the church's responsibility, do you think? Sir? We are. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. Um, and so he tells these people, these church elders emphatically over and over again to follow his example and to fully trust in Christ. And he reiterates this time and time again. And, it, and like I said, it's so profound that the people, yeah. just, they don't want to see him go. Right. So you can imagine if they're accompanying him to the boat, they're sad. 
guess if I guess if I were Kim, if I'm in Kim's shoes, what I'm looking for is the church to use that example to say, mm-hmm. just like Paul did. You know, Paul said, "I go from city to city, and the only thing I really get is arrested." <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? But right. I don't care. Yeah, yeah. I'm all right with that. Yeah, right. So I think it would be interesting if that church had said to him, "You know, go forth and understand the hardships, just like Paul did." Okay. Similarly, George Peters talks about in his article and he says that it is a responsibility and a challenge and an opportunity for the church to direct that to young people. So mm. at least if they mm. participated maybe yeah. in that. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Good point. Yeah. <clears throat> Good. So one way, two ways uh, that Carl has mentioned that perhaps the church could involve themselves in what Kim is proposing. One is uh, to encourage her, hey, we, we don't want to see you go, you know, uh, if, if it meant leaving us. I'm not clear that it meant le- her leaving them, but let's assume it did for sake of discussion. They, we, we don't want to see that, but we want to see the mission expand and, uh, uh, and offer her some instruction from examples in Scripture about what it means to go out and do the Lord's work. Uh, so offer those warnings, but also encouragements. But then also perhaps saying, look, if you go to do this, we want the whole church to know that you're doing it. And we want the whole church to be behind you in it. And one way for us to do that is to have you come on a Sunday before you start, come up front, and we'll lay hands on you uh, to commission you. Uh, to send you out to do this. And that way, everybody in the church knows to pray for you on this. If anybody else wants to get involved more directly with it, they'll know about it. Uh, that's that's a good way that a church could support someone like this. What else? Along those same lines, All right, so let's talk for a little bit about that authentication of the, the call of God. So Kim comes and presents this. The fact that somebody in the church presents a particular thing does not necessarily mean, I'm, I'm saying this, you guys can push back, <laughs> but it does not necessarily mean that that's the call of God. One, on that individual... But certainly it may not be the call of God on the, on the church. And that's why you have leadership to help discern that. So sometimes you can have someone say, I've got a burden for a particular thing. And yet that doesn't automatically mean, right, that the church then is obligated to jump on board with that thing. One, you want to find out what it is. There are plenty of things that people think are good that have pitfalls to them, even doctrinal perhaps issues with them, and the partnership that they're proposing that they may not know about that would need to be investigated to see if this is something that the church as a whole feels comfortable identifying with. So that would be one level. Uh, It may be that the timing's just not good from a church perspective. We've got 15 other things happening. And we, we don't think it would be wise to add a 16th right now. 
So all things being equal, if we have funding, we'd like to help fund this for you, if it's a good thing. But we may not have that right now. So you have to be able to communicate that as well. So there needs to be some vetting, right, on the part of the leadership as the person makes the proposal. And after that vetting, with all of those factors taken into consideration, it might be that the leadership says, you know, regretfully, we're not, we're not able to do this right now. And, uh, you know, if now the individual can go and do whatever they want, you know, assuming they're not doing something overtly sinful or something, well, then they can go do that. But it shouldn't be that the individual then is going to be ticked <laughs> at the church as long as, and again, this is me stating the way I see it, push back, as long as the leadership has communicated a sensitivity to that, that our, our, first, our first option is to help. So we want to find ways to actually say yes. I think that's the way we ought to approach it as leadership. Let's see if we can't find ways to say yes to whatever extent we're able to say yes. But then if trying our level best we're not able to, then we just want to sensitively communicate that you know, to the individual. We just you know, can't do it right now, but Godspeed to you, you know, as you as you go to do it. So authenticating the call of God is multifaceted. A lot of things that the leadership has to consider. And uh, it's, I just tell you guys, and this is one of the reasons we have these sessions, so that we've got multiple men in our church who recognize these kinds of issues and are sensitive to them. That's a challenge. What What we're saying right here is a challenge. And the more a church grows, the more of a challenge it becomes. Because think about it, you've got more people now with more ideas about what we ought to do. And you've got then more people who come and say, I'd like to do this. And you simply can't do every good thing that everybody wants to do. But you also don't want to squelch unnecessarily the enthusiasm that someone has to serve the Lord. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. And even more than that, try to take time to try to find a way to say yes. You know, that, that's, that's my view, is that anything anybody in our church believes God's burdening them to do, then uh, unless immediately I know it's something that's off limits, it's something that you know, would be displeasing to God. It's got some doctrinal issue or some association that we simply shouldn't be involved with. Well, in that case, I'd point that out kindly to the individual. But unless I know that, then I want to take some time and uh, look into it, try to find a way to help the person, support the person, encourage the person in whatever ways we're able. If that's simply prayer, if we don't have any money, well, then we'll do that. And we'll commit to doing that as a leadership team, letting our church know that you're involved in it, you know, that kind of thing. Let me, let me give you an example. Uh, Sharon Sternberg is uh, involved with Healing Hearts Ministry for post-abortive women. These are women who have had an abortion. And this is a ministry devoted to those people because it is a fact that most of those women, after they've had an abortion, years later, they have a sense of guilt that is just overwhelming. And it just uh, is, and, and it causes many of them become alcoholic. I mean, it's really bad. 
And Sharon can identify with this because that's what she went through. That's her testimony. Uh, so she's been involved with this for several years. She has a burden for that. So she's you know, come to me, come to the leadership team about what we can do to partner with her. So we have their literature on the, on the information table. She holds meetings in this room with, uh, with women. So we've made our facility available. Uh, so it, and, and we hope through the women's ministry to partner even more with that. But the point is, there's somebody who's got that burden. It's something that we can help her with, we want to help her with, and, and we are trying to help her with it. And uh, I want to try to help anybody we can say yes in some way, uh, if we can. But if we can't, then you've got to be more sensitive than these guys were <laughs> in how you communicate it. I would say they, I was agreeing with uh, Aaron that they were really more indifferent than anything to them. Yeah. They kind of push her aside. Yeah. I look at mission work as the church coming beside that person yeah. and helping them be yeah. along every step and giving them. Yeah. There's going to be problems along the way yeah. where the church needs to step in and help them. Yeah. You see that in Jerusalem. They were sending people out when something happened to see what kind of problem they were. Yeah, yeah, it's good. And you know, that indifferent thing, man, you got to be careful with it because you can fall into that if you're, if you're not real careful. Uh, especially if you get multiple things going on and you get lots of people, you know, or come say, I want to do this, I want to do that. And, you know, and you just become like, yeah, okay, right, thanks. <laughs> don't call us, we'll call you kind of thing. And it's not the right way. I don't mean that by it, of course. And I don't think we've done that, and I hope we never do. But it would be easy to fall into. We need to be aware of it because, it, yeah, it's easier. You don't give a hard no or a hard yes. You just say, okay, sure, well, we'll see. Yeah. So what else? Anything else about the church's responsibility, do you think? I think they should have a uh, missions policy uh, all in place to determine ahead of time you know, mm. what kind of missions uh, you want to support. Uh, like for Sharon, if she said, I have this burden for ladies, but uh, I'm going to go to Africa. So how would you respond to that? I want to go to Africa and sit, you mean uh, reside in Africa. Yeah. and. Uh, yeah, yeah. And will you guys support me to, to go and do that? Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, good good point. Uh, because since resources are not unlimited, since resources are limited, you have to have some way to winnow out what you, what you can't do and what things you're going to try to focus on. So we've tried to do that uh, here by focusing on missions that are directly planting churches or are directly supporting church planters. So we have some guys who are teaching in a Bible college in Kenya. But what they're doing there is they are teaching church leaders. So they're strengthening the church through, through teaching those church leaders theology that they wouldn't otherwise be able to get. So we're happy to support Jeremy Pitsley, for example, in, in doing that. Most of the guys we, we have are directly involved in church planting. Daniel Kumar has planted multiple churches in, in India, for example. Rob Howell planted multiple churches in Tanzania. Um, we've got a number of guys in uh, China. Where do we put this recording? <laughs> we've got a number of guys in China that are church planting in a different way. 
because it has to be the underground you know, house church. But nonetheless, they're still gathering groups of believers together to do that. So we've tried to focus on that. One, so if somebody comes with something else, it's not that we, we won't do it, but it's not, it's not our top priority. So we, we have that policy, and we've pursued that policy as a leadership team. Uh, and then another way is, you know, it's not because by any means this is the only good school around for somebody to come uh, out of with training for mission work. But for us, since we're in the Detroit area and 20 minutes south of Detroit Baptist Seminary, we've also said we're primarily going to support guys who come out of there only because we know them. So it's an easy way for us to trust what these guys were taught when they were in school. Again, it's not to say we wouldn't take somebody from someplace else. In fact, Michael Carlisle, who we support in Cambodia, is not a, a DBTS guy. He's from a central seminary in, in Minneapolis. But God forgives. So you can... <laughs> no, he's a great guy, and that's a great seminary. And, but it gives us you know, church planting... Uh, DBTS. So that way we have a criteria that, because I'll tell you, back to the funds are not unlimited. You have way more people seeking funds than you have funds available. So you have to have some way to do that. Okay. One last thing on that. Um, February 16th, assuming we're back in the building, while I'm doing the newcomer's orientation, uh, we have a young lady in her 20s who's going to make a missions presentation. Um, and she is looking to go to Africa. Uh, and she is looking to go to Africa to teach uh, children uh, in an orphanage in Africa. So I got the letter from her. I know her father, who's a pastor in Livonia, and uh, their church is supplying 50% or something of her support. And then, the, and then they're looking for others to, to join. And in her dad's cover letter, he said, look, you know, we primarily support church planting and all that. So he knows the deal. And he goes, if that's the deal with you guys that he's sending this letter to, I fully understand. But if you could see your way clear to pray about it, think about it, have her in, you know, it'd be great. And, you know, I'm just being straight with you guys, and Ed knows because I presented this to our leadership team last month. I said, you know, as I read that, I was really moved, and I, and I was literally moved emotionally as I read the letter of this young lady who's willing to go to Africa to teach these kids in this orphanage. And I thought, you know, if there's some way for, if, if nothing else, if we can just have her in and let her present that burden, even if we don't have funds available to support her uh, or, or whatever, if nothing else, it, hopefully it would be an encouragement to her, but also an encouragement to our young people to say, look at this young lady who's willing to give her life that way. Okay? So that in itself is worthwhile, in my view. So I talked to the leadership team about it, and I said, look, it is outside those unwritten but real boundaries that we've been following. Uh, so if we say no, that's fine, and they'll understand that. But the leadership team agreed that it would be a good thing for, for us to at least let her come and present that. And so she's going to do that. 
Um, so after this discussion in February, if you see her, you'll say, wait a minute, I thought you said only church planners and you know all the stuff. But that's, that's what our primary focus is. But we're, we've got some flexibility you know, to do some other things as the situation calls for. So. What else? We need anything else for a policy, a spreadsheet? Well, this is Matt's potential church. I think I did. What about it? Oh, yeah. I know. Yeah. And so you're going, and so you're looking at it, and then you're thinking about Matt, and you're going, do they got a different Matt? Well, the well, it's well. Primarily, that that's another advantage to kind of focusing in on you know one a few agencies that you that you deal with, <clears throat> because in focusing on guys primarily that come out of DBTS, it also means that the vast majority of those guys are going under a missions agency, Grace Baptist Mission. Well, Grace Baptist Mission is run by our sister church, Intercity. So they vet those guys. One, they've been trained in theology at DBTS, and then they, they vet those guys before they will take them on, even. So there's sort of a good housekeeping seal of approval by having a, uh, a clearinghouse that, that you trust and a relationship with that. And so most of the guys on our missions list that we support are actually Grace Baptist Mission sent missionaries. Then the second thing is that that means that most of those guys are members at Inner City. They're actually coming out of that church. Not all of them, but many of them. So you know the church they're coming from. You know the, you know the education they got. You know the board that they're under. So we don't have to run them through a lot more hoops outside of that. One of the reasons churches have these large questionnaires for missionaries is because they haven't narrowed it down that way. So they've just got people coming from disparate places, cold calling. They don't know who they are. They don't know where, you know, really where they came from. They don't know much about the missions agency. So now we've got to go through this whole deal to find out about these people. And all of the people that we've supported, and there's a whole bunch more that we could if we had unlimited funds, these are all people that we know something about because of those relationships. Now, if we didn't have that, then we'd have to have something more formal. Yeah. Yes, sir. I don't know if I can ask this directly. Um, reading, what was it, Dave? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's a hard one for you to remember, the Dave thing? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> brother-in-law that was with Campus Crusade for Christ. Okay. Church organization. A lot of individuals support ah, yeah. churches. Yeah. Okay. And then previous church I was at, period of time, we, like, we had one missionary that would have 50 churches supporting him. Yeah. And when he came on my furlough, you never got to see him, you never got to know him. Right. We went more to the, I think the church moved more to try to do, when you got a missionary cover, like 50% of their support or something more, so they would have a home church. Yeah. 
Yeah. Is it better for a church to have fewer with more support or yeah. do this? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, it does, exactly. Yeah, John's saying that our parent church at Huron years ago, we had all this discussion about that, even developed a, uh, an approach to address that very thing. And the bottom line was, and is for us here, um, it is better to have fewer that give more than it is to have 50 churches giving a, a very small stipend. It's better for the missionary, too. Forget the church. It's better for the missionary. <laughs> Because they've now got 50 churches they've got to be beholden to. And, and that's not an exaggeration. You, like you say, you know this person personally that had that. And there's a lot of missionaries who, who have that. When I was a kid, my dad was a deacon. So we always had the missionaries at our house. So ah. we would move them all. Yeah. And so most of the guys that, we, that are on our prayer list that, that we support are supported by a smaller number than than 50, but still more than most would like. It's mostly a funding issue, you know. So 20, you know, but that's better than 50. Uh, depends on the missionary, depends on the level of support they got, you know, from their sending church, all of that. Uh, but to answer your question, yeah, more from fewer churches is better for, is better for everybody. So we've, <laughs> look, there's a whole dirty secret with this whole thing. Is it look? It can look really cool to say we support seventy missionaries at our church. We give them twenty bucks a month, but we support seventy missionaries. <laughs> you know, so sometimes that's a game, frankly, that churches play. It makes the church look like they're much more missions-minded. There's all of this international work going on. But when, in fact, if you look at it, they're barely supporting a lot, of, a lot of these people. So we've tried to give substantial support or more substantial support to the 10 missionaries that we have rather than having 30 missionaries that we give much smaller to. And that does make sense. I know um, somewhere I read in the Bible that some left from a church, but they were preaching wrongly or doing wrongly. And I know Paul said something about it, you know, that they came from the church, but they're not doing what's right. Mm. They're not teaching rightly. So mm. if they do have way more than you can keep track of, I don't uh, know what they're, uh, you know, uh, what they're doing. Uh, yeah, accountability would be very difficult, wouldn't it? Yeah, good. There you go. Bill's an example. Bill's an example. Uh, our brother-in-law... So Kim's brother, my wife's brother, his wife's brother, Bill, is a missionary in Germany. And he's one of those guys that's got a zillion. Yeah, and, it's, and it's all over the country. Yeah, it's insane what they've got going. Yep, 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 yep. And, you know, he's just given a directory of churches. When he went out, he graduates from Bible college, and he's given literally a directory of churches in the Baptist Bible Fellowship. That's the group of churches that he had been associated with. And the school that he graduated from in Missouri was... Uh, was run by. And so he gets this directory of, you know, 4,000 Baptist Bible Fellowship churches, and he just starts calling. And so these are cold calls, and then and then the pastors on the receiving end don't know him, so then they go through, it's, yeah, not, not very good. We have a much, <laughs> very thankful for the setup that God's allowed us to have here. And when I saw him back a few months ago, he's not getting very much because he's almost, <laughs> almost, 
Who? When we saw him at the church, I don't know, a few months back, he was malnourished. He's only just thick. <laughs> Kim's brother? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. Yeah. He's a karate guy and, and all of that. Health food nut. That health food stuff will kill you. He's going to die before I am. So. <laughs> I prophesy. And if you're wrong, you have to Try to collect. <laughs> Look at number two. What commitments, priorities, passions are common to the three churches that they studied in studying the Scripture? So there's that whole uh, chart there. Commitments, priorities, passions. Okay. Um, they wanted to have dinner with each other to fellowship and praise the Lord. And they also, their income, they helped each other. Hmm. Good. Now, did you, see, did you see all of those from all three of them? Uh, you know, this was so long ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's just this chicken scratch I had. <laughs> okay, good. But it probably was a mix of all of them, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I think they all submitted to a apostolic authority. Okay, that's good. Because, you know, they went to the people that, well, they were educated by Christ, or, so they knew where to go to get their initial education or theme or whatever. Hmm. And that blends into number three, too, uh, under like a unique advantage. That's one of the things I thought of, was that they all had... I mean, and, and I think it was one of the writers had differentiated between types of apostles, which yeah. may or may not be yeah. accurate. But there certainly is a sense in which the 12 apostles of Christ and adding in Paul were uniquely yeah. foundational to right. church planning in that first century. Yeah. And so they had that advantage of you know, authoritative speakers, authoritative mm-hmm. teachers, you know, to help build mm-hmm. them up. I mean, that church in Ephesus is pretty strong. By Ephesians 20, or by by Acts 20, because of Paul spending so much time with them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, that's good. I had the same thing. The next one, they didn't have scriptures. I mean, other than when they finally got a letter, but nothing was compiled for them. So, so that that's a hindrance. Yeah, but the positive side was they got the apostles. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. But when the apostles are not there, because the apostles can't be everywhere all the time, they're moving on, they're moving around, they're itinerant, the apostles are, they don't have copies of the scriptures, you know, like we do. Jerry? Oh, I was saying, back to number two, is I think they were committed to the gospel, hmm. and they sent people out uh, to support the, the people that were out there in the groups God was using in the area. So even there was people in another area, they would send people out to see what was going on in that area. So they were trying to support groups that they heard about, too, to see yeah. what was going on so they could help those groups. So what, uh, let's take number two and let's try to apply it to our church or generically to a church now uh, in the 21st century. Uh, what kinds of things ought to be priorities for us? The gospel, right? Okay. Um, but we would all agree also evangelism, right? So evangelism, and I'll lump these together, the gospel, well, evangelism. And when I say the gospel, yes, I mean initially giving the gospel and people responding, evangelism. But the gospel then goes on you know, in our lives. 
Uh, so I'll call that edification, building up the saints. But then there's evangelism, reaching the unreached. And then uh, Luke, in the 28 chapters of Acts, is very meticulous about giving you numbers. And uh, much is made of that in that first article about the fact that uh, Luke documents the numerical growth of the church. So expansion is another, uh, should be, I think, another objective for us to think about, to pursue. So three E's, these are all in uh, Master Plan for Life, one of our Wednesday courses, but uh, edification and evangelism and expansion. And uh, actually, evangel in the order, evangelism, edification, and expansion. You know, people come to Christ, people are built up in Christ, and then the mission of the church expands as more, as that happens with more and more people. More people are reached, more people are built up. Now the, the mission of the church expands, right? Yeah. And so those three things ought to be priorities for, for our church. Then you have to wisely think about how do we do that? Okay, we can all, we all agree with that. But then you have to say, well, okay, how, what things are we going to put in place? What structures are we going to put in place to make sure that that happens effectively? You know, what can we do to make sure that people are built up in the faith? What can we do to make sure that uh, the, the gospel is going out into, into our community and that people are regularly hearing the gospel? What can we do to, to expand the mission of the, of the church? Those are all, man, that, <laughs> that's a life's work right there, right? Uh, you know, structuring a church so that it's effective in, in all of those. You guys have any thoughts about that? I mean, we, we, we have some ways to do that, you know, here. But just off the, you know, how, how do you structure for edification? Let's start, let's start with that, building up the saints. What kinds of things should you structure for, uh, organize for, to make that happen? Okay, all right, okay. So that's that's a now that's a that's a targeted demographic group, men, right, who have particular needs and particular struggles. That it's wise if you're going to try to disciple people, build them up in the faith, for you to try to assist that group with. So having those kinds of targeted demographic ministries is, and structuring for that is a good thing. You know, what, what else? Those things <clears throat> ought to be satellites kind of around a core curriculum that everybody goes through, whatever your demographic. So there are core things and core teachings and, and core disciplines that every Christian needs to be involved in. So churches should have, if they're going to be serious about this edification idea, building up the saints, they should have a core curriculum that people go through. And that's, that's why we have that. That's why we have the Community Institute. These are the classes that you take. It's to try to deal with that very issue because that is a foundational issue, I'm convinced that otherwise, by default, the building up, the discipleship, takes place by osmosis. 
some of you guys have heard me say that, but it's just hang around long enough and hopefully you'll get the idea. Instead of a structured, intentional way to have people get grounded in the faith. Now, if you do that and in addition to that, you say, and what are the special needs now within our church of men, women, young people, young adults, young married? Now you're hitting on all cylinders, right? So that's one way to structure church, I think, uh, to effectively try to minister to people. Core curriculum, everybody goes through, and then these kind of targeted demographic groups. And then for evangelism, uh, personal evangelism will not, uh, will not take place um, uh, will not take place uh, effectively and, uh, and, and quantitatively, for lack of a better term. It won't, do, it won't happen much. If the church itself is not evangelistically minded. So if, if you say, see, what pastors do, what we do, is we say, this is how we're going to evangelize. We're going to kick you in the backside to say, you need to get out there and evangelize. Well, that's all true. But people, you can harp on that all you want. But that needs to be a partnership between the members of the church and the church as a whole to say, yes, you need to be witnessing for Christ in your sphere of influence. But you also need to know we're partnering with you so that in the fruit of that, if you can invite someone to, if you invite someone to come to church, either after they've made a profession or they're just interested enough now to trust you to come and see what this is all about, that when they come, we're not going to unnecessarily embarrass you. <laughs> we're going to try to we're going to try to speak in a way that that person will understand, and we'll actually have a time for us the discovering God hour that is designed for you to invite that person to come to, as opposed to like the worship service, which is not primarily designed for for an unbeliever. So the more you do that, the more effective a church becomes. The more you see people starting to talk to folks, feeling comfortable talking to folks, feeling comfortable inviting folks. It needs to be a partnership between the church and, and the individual. And then for expansion, <clears throat> if the church is going to ex- expand through planting, through sending guys out, like, you know, say Pastor Matt ends up going out like that, well, one of the things the church needs to be structured to do is train guys who can then be equipped to go and do that very thing and you need a steady pipeline of guys doing that you know so for us as i discussed five weeks ago or seven weeks ago or whatever it was when we had our first meeting i said we're trying to have these multiple levels of training of men the broadest level is the men's fraternity then leadership institute but we've got the pastors in training program and then um, and then our uh, leadership team and the uh, training we're going through there as well. So you do all of those, you know, you're always wanting to improve it and monitor it and make it more efficient and better. But if you'll do all those, then uh, you'll, be, you'll make some headway as a church. Any other thoughts about 
how a church could structure itself for this. All right, take a look at number three, these hindrances and advantages. I've already mentioned some. One hindrance is no scriptures. One advantage is they had the apostles. What else? Sir? Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. No, that's right. Yeah. Absolutely. That's good. That's an excellent point. Yeah, so the distance, right, and then uh, traversing that distance, that's a, that's a real obstacle to, to overcome that we don't think about. The way we do, though, because, you know, the time constraint wasn't as much as they expected it to take them three weeks to get 1,500 But, yes, true. So they didn't think of it that way. But nevertheless... Yeah, and, and still the early church was able to accomplish as much as it did, you know, without the advantages of quick communication, quick travel like we have, without the advantages of published material, no published material. That the, you know, the book of Acts had none, none of that stuff. So you couldn't go and find a book on whatever from a Christian standpoint. Nowhere in the first century. And you don't have the printing press until centuries later to actually pump out Bibles and pump out stuff like this. So what it means is that we, we ought to be looking to be more effective in terms of reaching people with all of the tools and advantages we have available to us if used appropriately. So it really should put some appropriate pressure on us, I think, to say we got all this stuff. You know, let's make sure we use it and use it to good advantage. What else? I think they were, <clears throat> in almost all the examples, the Judaizers hmm. try to pull them back into the law. And, and Peter even, you know, Paul had to get in his face at one point <clears throat> because he wanted, said they had to be circumcised. That's what it was. And I could see that if you're brought up in that culture, maybe your whole life, and all of a sudden that's... Yeah. Right. That's wrong. I mean, that's no longer yeah. not wrong, but it's no longer the uh, yeah. living by the law, and then all of a yeah. sudden now it's by faith. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. had to be huge. And then I think even when they were in Gentile areas, there were Judaizers that came, right? But still sort of pushed. Yes. Them. Yes. So. Yeah. So that's a disadvantage they had that they were having to battle that. It's a hindrance. Yeah. They were also, they, a lot of them were still looking for that earthly king to come you know, mm. and get them out of the mess with the world mm. they were in. It just wasn't at that time. Mm. So having controversies that you're having to deal with regularly you know, is, a, is, is, is a challenge to being able to move forward in what it is you're trying to, you're trying to do. And they certainly had the unique challenge of this being new, coming out of, one dispensation now into another and uh, uh, abruptly <laughs> and having to change them, their way of life, really, their way of religious life. 
And uh, that took some time to get that ironed out, no doubt. You know, I try to think as we're talking here, how would I, what would we do if we had, I mean, what if we had an influx of, uh, of people who, we, we actually had a guy here a few years ago. Uh, he never joined. Uh, it was a really nice guy, really nice family. I still remember, it's like three or four years ago, they're at our um, celebration dinner, and you know how we pass the mic around and people give testimonies? And the wife gives a testimony about how much her kids love the church and they love the church. And so, and you know, we're, we're going to be joining soon. And she looks over at her husband, <laughs> and he's looking at her like, really, you're joining? <laughs> and they never did, but, but the guy dialogued with Pastor Matt and with me, and he was a guy who says we don't give enough, not just we, CBC, but churches, don't give enough attention to the law. And the more we, the more we talked to him, he had some influence from some Judaistic sources that were trying to uh, convince him and had convinced him, and he was trying to convince us, that uh, the law's not done away with. Well, there's nothing doing on that. I mean, we're not budging on that, okay. And, and so we... Over a, a good while, Pastor Matt and I pushed back, you know, on that. But what if you had a bunch of people who came, started visiting your church, who started doing that? We obviously they wouldn't join the church because they don't believe what we believe. We wouldn't let them join the church uh, because we're not on the same page doctrinally. But they, they could come and they could agitate. There's one in every crowd, you know? <laughs> so, so, you know, what would you... Because that's what they had. They had people infiltrating. And in fact, in Acts 20, that very moving, uh, he says, from among your own number. You know, people will come and they will not spare the flock, right? So he's warning about that kind of stuff. So you could have people who, who come and, and, and do that. What would you, what would you do? I'm... Uh, thinking out loud here thankfully we haven't had that happen we said we had this one guy we you know parted ways amicably but parted ways but uh what would you do you know i'm thinking to myself you know in in the early church they just had to they were in that unique position of that transition they just had to deal with it and it was going to have to deal with it over a period of time in a lot of places but if we had an influx of people trying to agitate for a particular thing that in the case of this legalism and trying to place you under the law, gets to the heart of the good news, gets to the heart of the gospel. Then I think in addition to refuting the teaching of those people, it would also give you an occasion to really accentuate the gospel to your own people, wouldn't it? So I mean, I th- in my mind, I think that's the way we would go about that. We would, yes, refute... Th- the heresy but we would not just leave it at that but rather use as an occasion to strengthen our congregation in its understanding of the grace found in the in the gospel and why the law is done away and how christ is the end of the law romans 10 5 on it goes and that's titus 1 uh, actually as i'm saying this i'm thinking of titus 1 where it talks about the qualifications for uh, pastors 
And one of the things that pastors have to be able to do is refute, but also to build up, to strengthen both. And so I think if we ever had that, that would be the approach I'd be looking to take. And it's one. And it's one guy. Like you know, this one, we had this one yeah. guy. Yeah, one guy. But what if you had like they had? They had an influx of several people. So theoretically, what if you did have a bunch of people come in? Now that's a little more of a, an issue, because they're, you know, in cafe community and they're chatting with a bunch of people and they're, you know, maybe having some people over and going out to dinner together and they're trying to influence people in your church. You know, so you have a shepherding responsibility to protect the flock. There, what would you, what would you do? Yeah. It wasn't covert about it. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Well, look at number. <laughs> What'd you say? Kick him off the property. I'd <laughs> love to hear your complaints. Robert, come to the first. We got a hot one here. <laughs> nice. Well, look at number four. What's the role of the local church in extending the rule of God? Wow. Well, I'll give my answer. It's yeah. probably not right, but who knows? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've got the Great Commission. It hasn't changed. Okay. Um, also, preach, teach, baptize, train, fellowship, equip for every good work. Good. Yep. In the Great Commission, the article. Uh, I forgot the author's name, but that first article that goes through the book of Acts you know, mentions the Great Commission has these two major components to it, baptizing and teaching, and points out that who is it that baptizes? What or what institution baptizes? The church. So even in the Great Commission, Jesus has contemplated the role of the church in the carrying out of that mission. It's the church is going to baptize people into the church. So it's going to baptize and teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Now at that point, Matthew 28, Luke 24, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, at the end of, before he ascends to the Father, the church doesn't exist yet. And it won't exist for about seven weeks, the day of Pentecost, uh, or another week. Um, they, yeah, another week, the day of Pentecost. So, uh, but Jesus is contemplating the existence of this church because he knows it's going to start. He says, go and wait in the city until you receive power to begin the mission that I give you. And he's said previously in Matthew 16 uh, and verse 18 to Peter, remember, on this rock, I will, future, build my church. So the church doesn't exist yet, 
But of course, Jesus knows it's coming. And when he gives the Great Commission, it assumes the role of this church that's going to start a week later on the day of day of Pentecost. So when you say, Aaron, what's the role of the local church in extending the role of God? The Great Commission hasn't changed. And then I just want to make sure we understand that that Great Commission, as you read that fifth book of your New Testament, book of Acts, that Great Commission goes forward via the church. So it is the Great Commission, but the local church is central to seeing to that going forward. In fact, the Great Commission starts at the same time the church does, day of Pentecost. And the Great Commission extends simultaneous with the advance of the church. So they start at the same time and they go forward together. So the local church has a really (laughs) important role to play in the Great Commission. So how does all of that relate, though, to extending the rule of God? Now, remember, we talked a couple weeks ago about the rule of God, the reign of God. So what about this? What role does the local church play in the, uh, extending the rule of God? One, your local church must be a place where the rule of God is evident. You can't extend the rule of God if you're not under the rule of God. So the very first thing is that our church has to be a place where the rule of God is evident, that God rules here. God's in charge here. What God says goes. (laughs) What God says matters. And we gladly submit ourselves to that, to the rule of God. So the first thing you've got to be is a, a people who love God, love the Word of God, and love submitting then to the God of that Word. And then you seek, you seek to replicate churches like that. I mean, to me, that's the most straightforward way to extend the rule of God via the local church. Your church is a church that's under the rule of God. And clearly so, evidently so. And then you seek to multiply yourself the way they did in the book of Acts. You know, these were churches that were under the rule of God. Gladly so, willing to undergo whatever for the sake of his name. And then they multiplied themselves in in church planting. So my personal answer to that would be, Be a church that is clearly under the rule of God. And then plant churches that are like you, that are under the rule of God. And in that way, the rule of God is extended. Now, let me, let's look at it conversely. That's the way it should go. Do you see what a tragedy it is then? When churches are clearly not under the rule of God. And how many churches are not under the rule of God? Not obviously under the rule of God. What he says goes. And we gladly submit ourselves to that. You know, I won't beat on it too long, but how many churches in our day are watering down the truth? 
you're, you're watering down the truth, you ain't under the rule of God, right? <laughs> what he says doesn't go. What he says is negotiable, apparently, in our day. Or, if God says that that unity, harmony amongst believers ought to be the fruit of the Spirit, that and that you are to make Ephesians 4.3 every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit as a local body. But you see dissension and churches splitting. And not over and not over doctrinal issues. Not over stuff that really matters. But over personal slights. Or I want I wanted it this way and they did it that way. The rule of God is not is is not ha- not only not evident, it ain't happening. That's why it's not evident. Because if we were under the rule of God, we'd be pursuing reconciliation, wouldn't we? So we're not. And you see what kind of damage, what kind of damage is done, man. Damage is done to the mission. Damage is done to people that are left in the wake of that. I'm I'm done. I feel much better. But seriously, the reason I beat on that is, guys, um, God's church is central to the mission moving forward. God's letting us, he's letting me, he's letting you be a part of what he's doing. What a great privilege, isn't it? We need to see it that way. It's a great privilege. But we can mess it up. And it happens all the time that God is dethroned. God doesn't rule. People and their opinions and and their likes and dislikes Begin to, and when that happens, it's, it's an absolute tragedy, okay? So let's be aware of that. The mission doesn't go forward without the church, and so the church has to be a healthy place where the rule of God is evident, where what God says goes, okay? So thank God that to this point, he's allowed us to do that. And uh, let's make sure that we understand the importance of that. And don't give the devil a foothold on the unity of his of his church. All right. Number 5. <clears throat> what accounts for the rapid <clears throat> rapid growth and expansion of local churches in the 1st century? Can you identify any general principles for the development and expansion of local churches in our day? So, yes sir. Yeah, yeah. I, 
for the, to, to the second part, can you identify any general principles for the development and expansion of local churches in our day is to get the minds of the first century, you know, and mm -hmm. that God's will and God's power is stronger than the New Year's resolution, that it doesn't fade no matter how much time passes. Mm. That that may be the human thing to do. Yeah. We feel so far away from this commitment that we've made that now over here when it was clearly defined as vague and abstract, we yeah. So what do we do? What kind of general principles get the mindset? Is that the word you use, mindset, yeah. of the first century church back? So what was that mindset? You you said they couldn't lose. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But what gets in the way of that? What gets in the way of that? I got nothing to lose. I think you get this focus, and that's what happens to us today. We're, we've not become soldiers of Christ. We kind of get defocused and whittle our life away. You said, I think it's about a month ago whittling our life away and not being focused on what are we mm. here for. Mm. And I, I mm -hmm. agree with them. They were on fire. They were driven. And what is it that, that distracts us from being focused, though, from having that, that mindset that says I can't lose? Uh, well, here's where I'm going with that. I mean, for us, we got a particular problem. Us in America, we got a particular problem. Uh, because on the one hand, we've been blessed with uh, material wealth. But on the other hand, we've been cursed with material wealth, <laughs> right? Because it distracts. Because when we say, what do I got? We can't lose. No, we think we can lose. I got plenty to lose, right? So and, until, so to get that mindset, we've got to see our stuff as tools, for the advance of God's mission rather than allowing them to become hindrances to the advance of God's mission. And, uh, you know, you, you can read. I've done this, actually. I've read some. Go back to the 50s and read um, uh, Christian Life magazine. That was a kind of a precursor to Christianity Today and evangelical magazines at the time. And evangelicalism as a movement was, was just starting to explode at that time. Schools had been started, missions agencies, all kinds of stuff. And you just read the optimism about how the world is going to be transformed as all of this, all of this happens. But this is in the 50s. And the 50s began a very prosperous time, that baby boomer, post-war, you know, the industrial machine of the arsenal of democracy had cranked up, right? And so people are starting to, you know, and, and what will, that, that whole phrase, what will they think of next? That came out of that, because there was just one invention after another to make life easier for us. And you know, I'm clearly not against any of those things. But there's a, there was a real danger there. So at the one and the same time, you had real opportunity, but you also had real danger. And I ask you, sixty some year, sixty years later, what has won? The opportunity or the danger? And uh, and so okay, can't cry over that. It is what it is. But we can recognize it and learn from it. And if we're going to do what you said and get that mindset, we can't lose.
then we got to see our stuff as not stuff that I have to hold on to, that my life's about and centered around, that can distract me from the focus, but rather as tools to be used to advance, advance the cause. Sir. Um, in a different direction on that question, um, I was really moved by the geographical growth Mm. Of, of the, mm. the kinds of church growth. Mm. Specifically, we almost have to change it a little bit because our, our church is, our, our, our land is so huge mm. and the world is, is bigger because we have more access to it. Mm. We have to almost think demographically instead of geographically. Not mm. that there's you know, mm. conflict between the two, but mm. I, I, I thought about this when I did some studying on Acts and seminary and it kind of came back to me. The, in Acts 10 and 11, the doors are kind of broken down for Gentiles to accept the gospel and, oh, wow, they can be part of this great thing. And, and, it's, and it's great and amazing, but when you piece the timeline together, what we, someone had already mentioned, Peter having to be confronted by Paul comes after that. And so even though on one level we could say, Oh sure, those people can the gospel can reach them. Sure, we'll we'll you know do a Bible club in yeah. that area of town. Yeah. Sure, we'll yeah. you know we'll have a special ministry for you know for yeah. for you know women who've had a, an abortion or yeah. something. Yeah. Something that's maybe outside of our comfort zone. Yeah. But then they had to have a whole uh, a council. council right. A couple of years later, Peter still didn't have it right. right. They had to have a council in Acts 15 to hammer out exactly. Okay, are we going to make these new Gentile converts act and look like Jews in order to participate in the church. Mm-hmm. And so the, the fact that, okay, they were, they're in the gospel, if we don't want to accept that they can't be saved, mm-hmm. do we really want them with us? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's an entirely different question. Yeah, and yeah, that's it good. Was, it was convicting to me, do I think that people of a different color or socioeconomic group or speak a different language or, you know, whatever, yes. can't be saved? No, of course they can. But maybe the next step in breaking down our barriers to expand our reach, as the church did, is now we realize that, yes, they can get blended into the church. Yes, they can be just as full members as us. They mm-hmm. don't have to undergo some type of, you know, purging process. Mm. Like everyone is being purged. Yeah, but, yeah, right. You know, maybe Good. that's just the next step for us. So what accounts for this rapid growth? Well, one thing is they had—they were just breaking down barriers all over the place, geographic barriers, uh, racial barriers, right, uh, um, um, class barriers. They were sharing in common uh, their their goods. So they're doing that. And so, what general principles can can we get out of that? You know, we've got to analyze whether or not we're not just saying, "Yeah, the gospel's for everybody." But do we really believe that? And are we willing to actually practice that? Uh, you know, we, we, so think of, and I'll get to you in a, I'm sorry, Mark. What, what, think of, think of somebody who struggles with a particular kind of sin, a particular kind of lifestyle that you find absolutely abhorrent. That if they come into your they come into your fellowship with their baggage. Now they come into their fellowship. They 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 trust Christ. 
but they've got baggage. And they've got evident baggage. Are we good with that? And, the tr and, and I, I, I can tell you, I can tell you, there will be some number, decent number of people in, in our congregation who would go, I can't go there. And there are lots of things you could think about that you go, man, I don't think I can deal with that. That we need to say, how can Lord bring me to a point that I can deal with that? So bring me to a point that I can deal with that person who struggles with homosexuality. You know, I'll even up, I'll even up it one more. Okay? Uh, I recently had somebody ask me about, uh, you know, what about somebody who has, uh, who's on a sex offender registry? Now, let me just <laughs> set your mind at ease. That as leadership, as a church, you've got a responsibility to protect people. That's why we have a security team. That's why we have rules about who can serve in children's ministries, you know, and all that sort of stuff. So please understand, I, I do not for a moment believe that forgiveness means access. <laughs> you know, so, okay, you're, you're forgiven. But you've got this struggle, so we're going to help you with this struggle, but... You, you have this struggle. You've had this in your past. Therefore, these are the precautions that have to be taken, and you've got you to gotta be willing to roll with that, okay? Okay. Consequences for that. Okay, that's a consequence of that. It's not a punishment. It's a consequence, okay? It's just the way it is. It's what we've got to do. But we can do it together, okay? But that's the way you need to do it. That's the way a church needs to do it. That's the way we would do it. But. What, what else would need to happen with something like that, if anything, in your mind? And do, you have to, do, you, do you have to bring the person up and say, you know, when they join, and by the way, this person doesn't have a scarlet letter, but they should. <laughs> or there are people who think that's what you ought to do. Um, and, and maybe, you know, I'm, I'm asking. But those are the... And if you don't do that, and let's assume the leadership has handled it and handled it in the appropriate way I've talked about, restricting, keeping an eye on, and helping, and all of that. But then sister so-and-so, brother so-and-so finds out, you know, this person's on a registry. Now what? Oh, I'm telling you, it could, it could hit the fan very quickly. Um... <coughs> Now, it would be very appropriate if somebody finds that out to go, uh, did you know that? <laughs> right? And, and if you, okay, what do we do about that? You know, how do we handle it? Oh, oh, and, 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 what, and, and then it would be very appropriate for, to ask that and then for us to say, the, yes, we did, and here's the, here are the precautions, and here's, here's the deal. And if they have suggestions for further and better precautions, great, you know, make them. It's, maybe we can improve that. But having done all that we can humanly do, right, so all I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say, you know, there's some things that we can't relate to. Very hard for us to relate to the corruption that depravity can bring people to. Did you hear the way I said that? We're all depraved, but we have different levels of corruption. And but for the grace of God, we could be much more corrupt than we, than we are. So... 
by God's grace, we're not. And we haven't experienced that. So therefore, it's hard for us to relate at all to that. But we've got to think about those things. And it appears the early church took all comers. You know, and eliminated unnecessary barriers as best they could. I'm sorry to have you on hold all that time. Do you even remember your point now? And how could we, okay, this is, this is great stuff. And every one of these things leads me on some tangent. <laughs> but really, think about now the things that we could do that with, the issues we could do that with, that during fellowship time, cafe community, we're all chatting, and we alienate somebody about some peripheral issue, something peripheral to the gospel. Politics could be one, Right? And, I, and I've, so I've tried to fight that fight here for years. I, I saw that starting to develop amongst some, some folks in our, our church where if we're not careful, we become the Republican church. You know, and <laughs> so what are we going to do now? We're going, to un, we're going to set up unnecessary barriers to people with a different political background? So doesn't that mean we should be careful, we should be circumspect in the kind of stuff that we present to people? If we're going to be a church that's got open arms and trying to reach? So politics would be one of those. Um, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm all for gun safety. I'm all for training, for safety, and, and all that. Uh, we even let, you know, we have some training classes in the east wing of our building that some of our guys guys conduct so i'm all, I'm all good with that um but you know there were people disagree about guns did you know that <laughs> i mean they do um okay so should we make that a front and center issue for our church that if you're not a gun enthusiast you need to find some other place. No, it doesn't mean you, you know, need to change your position. It doesn't need you, and, and if it comes up, and you can kindly explain your position. But the truth of the matter is people should be able to agree to disagree about stuff like that for a larger purpose, and that larger purpose is the gospel. And we could make a long list of that stuff, but I'm saying that to you guys as leaders and potential leaders because we can set the pace for our church. We can set the climate for our church with that kind of that kind of stuff. Being aware of similar kinds of issues that are peripheral, not central to the gospel. Okay. All right. Number six. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To me, it stuck out that the early church. I'll say they were like the Pentecostal church, but no, there was a lot of apostolic healing. A lot of physical demonstration of God's power mm. and I don't know how that would apply to the mm-hmm. church today so much but yeah. the apostles were 
demonstrative as they expanded the gospel. And that was the purpose of those miracles. The purpose of those miracles was what? To spread the gospel to unknown uh, people not knowing God. Yeah. And we don't see that today. Right. Yeah, um, right. So they, they had these miraculous things going on. And uh, the reason I said that, the purpose of the... You know, so what's the purpose of speaking in tongues? First uh, Corinthians 1 says it's for a sign. And uh, it was a sign four times in the book of Acts that the gospel is universal. Uh, that's what speaking in tongues is about. Four times. Uh, Jews in Acts chapter 2, Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, God-fearers, that's, that's Gentiles who follow Jewish customs in Acts chapter 10, and then your garden variety, run-of-the-mill pagan Gentiles in Acts 19, those four. And you have those four occurrences of speaking in tongues in the book of Acts as a sign that all of those groups are welcomed into this new thing called the church as opposed to exclusively for Jews and, it, and, a, and a particular nation. And then the miracles that the apostles did were to uh, authenticate the, the mess. Yeah. So they're in this foundational period of the church where they need both of those things. And, and neither of those things are issues for us now. But, so having said that, have you ever noticed this? That the miracles that Jesus did and the miracles that the apostles did, I'm going to say always, and if you might think of a, an exception to this, but they had a humanitarian uh, effect somebody got healed somebody got raised from the dead so those kinds of miracles and they don't happen because their purpose is past but they had a humanitarian effect so what about humanitarian efforts of the church to alleviate human suffering Look, if all, if all God intended to do by those miracles was to show his power, then Jesus could have said, watch this building levitate. Watch me levitate a building. <laughs> oh, that's a humanitarian effect. There it is. Yeah, we know where this guy's head is, don't we? <laughs> and, 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 and somebody follow him out of the parking lot, too. <laughs> You know, these people are being healed, these people are being raised, raised from the dead. And I bring that up, we'll move on, but there's a big debate about that. About whether the church, and to what extent the church, should be involved in humanitarian kinds of efforts. And for myself, I'm just letting you know, for myself, I see that the credibility of our, our message, that we love people and we're serving a God who loves people, <laughs> uh, is, is strengthened when we're willing to help people as we're able. 
And so, you know, to paraphrase Peter, in Acts chapter 3, when they go to the temple and they find this man who's lame, and Peter says silver, or he's begging for money. And remember, Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And this guy's healed. So he didn't have money, but he was able to be the instrument of healing. I don't have money, and I'm not a healer. <laughs> but to take it to another level, such as I have, I give to you. You know, So I can't do that, but I can do this. You know, we can have a food pantry. We can be part of ChristNet to give people who are homeless a place to, to, to sleep and to see that Christians care about them. So I'm just letting you all know, I, I, for one, care about that stuff. But I want it to be supportive of the gospel, not in place of, of the gospel. But I think it, it lends credibility to our message when we, when we do that. All right, look at number. Oh, I, I yeah. would just add one more quick one. Please. That they... <coughs> Uh. The area I guess, or always to the synagogue first, and always to like the center of uh, religious worship in the city, and engage the, uh, culture. That's good. Yeah, that's very good. And you know, for so how do we do that? How would we do that here? Uh, and one guy who does that, you know, similar to I think the way Paul does similar, <laughs> but. Tim Keller, some of you know Tim Keller. The guy's got this church in Manhattan. Now you talk about a cultural center. You talk about idols. You talk about going to the culture and saying, here's the deal. And, uh, and yet God has gifted him to be able to speak to people in Manhattan you know, with, with the gospel. It's amazing. It's amazing how many people have gotten saved through that ministry who are people who we, most Christians, couldn't relate to or speak to at all. I'll just give you an example. Um, anybody know the name Kirsten Powers? Yeah. On Fox. She's a Fox commentator. She's the token Democrat <laughs> on Fox. When they, you know, so when they have a panel of you know, four people, there'll be three arch conservatives and then her, you know. Uh, but turns out that girl got saved, man. I mean, she really got saved. Wasn't it? There was an article in Christianity Today about her interviewing her. I mean, it was a great article, a great article, man. She has a great testimony. She saved, and she went to, it was like last year, year, last two years, she wrote an article in the Washington Post or something, and she was taking her liberal friends to task about their approach to abortion. You know, that, that the pro-abortion mindset has become so rabid that infanticide is being justified. I mean, it, you know, partial birth abortion, all that stuff, right? But she writes this article taking them to task. And I remember reading that. And I didn't know anything about her testimony. I'm just going, wow, that's, taking, that's some guts, you know, to, to do that. Well, then we find out this testimony. This girl got saved about five years ago. But who'd she get saved through? the ministry of Redeemer Presbyterian in Manhattan. Um, and, see, and, and the word has gotten around 
in Manhattan, you need to come and hear what this guy has to say. It's a, it's a, it's an amazing thing. I mean, Ann Coulter, I mean, uh, she hasn't saved. She hasn't saved, as far as I know. <laughs> but I remember reading in Time Magazine a couple years ago, they were doing a, uh, uh, a story about her and that she, that she attends there. There's a bunch of these people who go there because they want to hear, because this guy's able to talk to them about Christianity in a way that they can, they can understand. So anyway, but how do we, he's in Manhattan. And, uh, he, you know, he's, he's able to do that. How would we do that here? I'm asking. <laughs> so it's been him all that time with the rainbow hair, man. <laughs> Dave Allen, the rainbow fro. <laughs> That's good. You know, so, I mean, one way is to you know, is tackle some issues. So we, it's not, we're not in a cultural center in Trenton, right? So we're in, and, uh, or like Athens, you know, or Ephesus, where you have the lecture hall of Tyrannus that Paul would go to for two years and kind of take people on and, you know, dispute. So we're not, we're not that. But we can do things like invite people to, to hear, you know, an amp, a, 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 a professional and appropriate kind of debate, a polite debate about issues of, you know, does, is God necessary for morality? And have a break. what's his last name? You know who I'm talking Tim? Yeah, I know. I can never pronounce that dude's last name. But I've actually talked to Larry Castle about having him come and having a debate, because this dude is great. He's from Toronto. And uh, having Cy come. And then having a debate with an atheist or something, you know, and uh, and advertising that, and engaging people on those kinds of, uh, yeah, Brood and Kate, something let's uh, yeah, something like that. But anyway, uh, so that's one way we could do it. And if you guys know of others, you know, think about that. Right to a, to an extent, we're. We're inviting people to hear about issues that hopefully they care about and a biblical perspective on, on those issues. All right, let's, let's hasten. These have been good discussions, I think. Uh, I think we've covered most of this. The last one, number eight, and if you guys have anything to say about the others, that's fine. But how should a local church relate to uh, parachurch organizations, do you think? Sir, please. Mm. In the same chapter, Paul also talks about contributing to the needs of God's people, God's people, and sharing in the joys and the sorrows, and the, you know, to even feed your enemies, to be constant in prayer. Paul talks about you know, giving gifts and service, and he uses the word simplicity. At least you know, I have the Amplified Bible, so he yeah. uses the word simplicity in mind, and to recognize that our gifts are going to be different according to grace, but we should use them. Mm. And, and I hate to sound Yeah, it's a it's a it's a Christian organization, often doing good work, but 
uh, para-church means literally beside the church. So outside and beside the church. So instead of the church being central then to the mission, it's, uh, it's this group independent on its own doing its thing outside of the church. And in fact, in one of the articles, didn't it talk about that? Didn't it talk about how... Per- Case study? I just, where they talked about Dave, and they told him, go get support from individuals. That. That. So just, yeah. And, and was, he go, was he trying to go with a parachurch group? He was just trying to talk about going with individuals. Be a lot than churches. So bypassing the church. And so in that, se- in that same vein, if you're not careful, parachurch groups beside the church then can circumvent the church. And the church's role. So how should we relate then to these groups that are outside the church? They're not under the auspices of a church. So are they evil? Should we, you know, should we pastors denounce them every chance we get? Uh, so what should we do? Probably. Yeah, that's a good point. They're just, you know, people that decided to put their funds together and pass out Bibles. I mean... But you probably have to pick and choose because I'm sure there are some wackos out there. But yeah, but no, I say usually doing good work, and so passing out Bibles is obviously good work, yeah. Well, uh, Jesus kind of confronted this, like I think Mark said, kind of a circle the wagons mentality. You know, they said there's people, John's disciples or other disciples, doing works, but they're not in our group. Huh. Now, it remains to be seen whether they were where they should have been, but Jesus' response was he that is not against us is for us. Hmm. And they also said later, he that is not for us is against us. So hmm. there's some caution yeah, there. Yeah. And it's one of those like, don't rebuke a fool. No, do rebuke yeah. a fool. But, but the, the point of that, of that narrative seemed to be that Jesus was saying, look, just because someone isn't traveling with us in our group doesn't necessarily mean that we need to oppose them. Mm-hmm. We may not go hand in hand with them, mm-hmm. but we don't need to oppose them either. Mm-hmm. And I think that was sometimes the fault of Churches like the one I grew up in was, a, or at least the idea that we need to be in constant opposition to these ministry groups that don't line up quite with us. But, but that's okay. That uh, that's all good, and I'm I'm with I'm down with that. I know you're going to something. Yeah, because th- what you're talking about when you were growing up, they were so strident that forget parachurch. You had two churches, and a church didn't li- a church didn't line up exactly as they did. They would go after that church. So their deal wasn't they're, they're hurting the church. There was their church is not our church. And that's a kind of territorial turf war kind of thing that is very unseemly and has no place. And, and I'm with, okay. But this, though, is about is it church or is it something outside the church? And how, because if we agree that the church is central to the mission, then what is the role of parachurch and how should we relate to it? Assuming that, let's just assume it's parachurch and, we, and they line up a zillion, you know, and, and, and we required that they line up 100% with everything and we don't, but let's say we did and let's say they do. <laughs> it's still parachurch. So how do you relate to that? Um, and uh, it's... It's it's not a non-issue, okay? I don't think I'm just personally. I, I don't think it's something we should dismiss as well. You know, who cares? Because if the church is central, we don't want to then 
have a bunch of things going on that detract from that. Even with very good intentions and with good actions, let's see if we can't harness that same those same resources then and strengthen the church. I mean, that would be, you know, my view. Now, that's that's a pipe dream because these many of these groups are already doing what they're doing and they're not beholden to me. Uh, but to the extent you were able to do that, that would be a great thing. You know, one, uh, do that same work, but do it under the auspices and through the agency of the church. You know, but but the other thing is that uh, my approach personally is that I don't have any calling to denounce every and it is to denounce everything that I think is off. You know, to some degree. And especially if, if I don't think the methodology is the best, but if the gospel is being faithfully proclaimed and Bibles are being distributed, you know, I, I'm not going to lose much sleep over that, right? So how should we relate to it? I mean, I think we should maintain the centrality of the church to the mission. But that doesn't mean we have to go on the war path. And I'll give you an example um, that at least some in this room can relate to. We'll know what I'm talking about. There is a parachurch group called uh, Bible Studies Foundation or Bible Studies Fellowship. Is that what it's called? BSF. BSF. And they do Bible study material that I've actually, I went to a BSF meeting last year in Novi. It was a men's BSF meeting. Sat through their, their study. They do a very thorough study of the Bible. And they just go through the Bible, man. And it's really, help, it's really, and, and you've you got to make a serious commitment to do homework for this thing and the whole bit, okay? Um, so they've got people studying the Bible in depth. And they need places to house that, to do that. Well, you know, we got a building now. I would be thrilled to have bunches of people coming to study the Bible in depth and to even offer our place as, as a place to, to do that. Now, having said that, BSF is a parachurch group. So what am I going to do with that? It's an international parachurch group. And they've got these groups going everywhere. There's just zillions of people going through these things. Thank God, really. But it's a parachurch group. So I know a pastor friend. He's actually a former pastor now, in part because of this, what I'm going to tell you, in part, uh, who went on the warpath against BSF. Because there were people in his church, particularly women, who were going to a women's BSF group. And he's, you know, he's, he's not in favor of parachurch groups and he felt like that their attention to that was taking away from their attention to the church and so he kind of went on a, a warpath about that and it became a big problem in that in that church well to me uh, and I know I know this guy I've known him for years but to me that's just foolish um, you know if, if we were able to start BSF over again and structure it under the auspices of a church or churches, that would, be a, that would be a very good thing to do. But that ship has sailed. This thing started in the 40s. Okay? And, and yet they've developed these materials that 
would take you forever to try to replicate. So, you know, don't curse that, you know, just, and in fact, if our people can benefit by that and we could see people come to the Lord through that means and, and all of that, then let's partner as we're able, is my view. So I guess what I'm advocating for is a wise approach to uh, interacting with uh, parachurch groups that still keeps the centrality of the local church, you know, primary. All right. Anything else? Some of what parachurch groups do is what the church probably can. Like, I'll say Samaritan's first. They've got yeah. massive <coughs> yeah. logistics involved in, like, at Christmas time, in boxes and yeah. children with gifts Yeah, right. Well, yeah, right. I mean, you know, Bethany Christian Services is a, you know, we had Bethany in here and we're collecting stuff to give to Bethany to to do that kind of thing because they can do it in a way that, and they have expertise that we don't have. But I think we, would we all agree with this? That it would be, un, it would be wrong for any of us to divert our uh, primary giving and our primary energies away from God's church towards something else. So, you know, you're, notice I keep, I'm using the word primary. So you're keeping the church primary, but at the same time you may have parachurch groups that you've been blessed by, that you just like what they're doing, you want to support what they're doing, right? So, but it's ancillary, it's in addition to, it's supplemental to what you're doing with the church. I think that's a, a good approach for us to, to take. You were going to say, John? Well, I was going to say two things. First, that um, if you do in any way support or use the materials of parachurch organizations, a lot of time you, know, you can you know, read um, about the leadership of that organization and they'll, at least from my experience, most of the time say that they place themselves under the okay. leadership of the okay. church that they Okay. And then also that, um, in a sense, it would be easier for the leadership of the church just to ban all uh, parachurch organizations just because then, you know, otherwise uh, sometimes they'll bring in conflicts or other ideas or things that aren't necessarily taught in the church. And I think um, for the le- church leader, it would be easier to say, don't listen to anybody else other than what I teach Yeah. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. It would be easier, but man, you know, you miss a lot of great. Some of the booklets we have here from the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. I mean, those guys put out just some magnificent stuff, but that's a parachurch group. But I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want our people to miss out on, on that stuff. And I wouldn't want to miss out on that stuff because it helps. I've read all their stuff. I mean, it benefits me greatly. Yeah, so it would it would be. I know you're not advocating that, no. but you're, <laughs> yeah, I know. But and, and but it would be very short sighted, you know, to do that. And boy, uh, I would not, uh, I would not want. There's a there's a bit of arrogance. I'd be afraid, personally, I'd be afraid to say you get your teaching from me. Period. You know, I mean, I'm man. I've got my role to play, <laughs> but my role's a limited role, and. And there are other much, much better equipped servants 
who can supplement and enhance and do much better at teaching and particularly teaching certain things to God's people than I can do. Now, they can't pastor you because they're not here. So I can do what they can't do, <laughs> right? But they can help with that, and they can help in a great way. And you take like a Ligonier Ministries, <clears throat> you know, R.C. Sproul. I mean, man, you, I mean, that dude, you're, I don't, <laughs> nobody can hold a candle to that guy. You know, in terms of the depth of his teaching and his ability to take very difficult concepts and make them clear to people. Well, thank God for that. That's why we got his book over here, Holiness of God, you know, and chosen by God. It, he's, he's able to do that. So anyway, how do, so how should we relate to these parachurch groups in a, in a wise way, in a way that still keeps the church primary, but then allows God's people as best we can to benefit from the fruit of the labor of some of these other saints? Okay. All right, we went over. And whenever we do that, if you need to walk out at 730, don't hesitate. won't hurt my feelings. All right, thanks.